On episode 288 of the Tennis Files podcast, you'll learn all about strength and conditioning for tennis players with Dr. Mark Kovacs. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. This is Mehrban, and on today's episode, I found an interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs that I did back in 2016 on strength and conditioning for tennis players. That's definitely a classic in my humble opinion, and Dr. Kovacs educates us all about how we can improve our tennis fitness to become better players, uh, some of the best and worst exercises that you can do to improve your tennis game, and it's just a great episode to help with your tennis fitness fundamentals, so I really hope that you enjoy this interview, and without further ado, here is my chat with Dr. Mark. Kovacs. Uh, Mark, uh, again, it's, it's truly an honor, and I want to welcome you to the uh, podcast today. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the nice introduction and really excited to be on with you. you know, I, I love talking about this topic of conditioning and fitness for tennis, so really excited to be here and looking forward to discussing some really interesting topics. Uh, thanks so much, Mark. Uh, Mark, it's kind of interesting. I first heard about you when I uh, purchased a course from uh, for Will from uh, Fuzzy Yellow Balls, and it was a, uh, I believe, a kinetic chain uh, course, which was actually very helpful in understanding, uh, you know, the weight transfer and the importance of the kinetic chain. And uh, from there, you know, I've I've read your articles, and you actually have a staggering amount of articles on uh, on PubMed, which are all really great. Um, but again, you know, thanks so much for being on the show. And uh, I just want to start off by asking you, you know, you're you obviously a world-renowned fitness and sports performance expert, but how did you get to where you are today? That's a really, really good question because uh, I started as an athlete, like a lot of people that get into the area of sports science and sports performance. Uh, the only thing I ever wanted to do was be a tennis player. I grew up in Australia, played uh, a few junior grand slams, played a lot on the ITF junior circuit, and then you know came to Auburn and uh, played there. Was looking to be a professional tennis player and had some injury issues uh, along the way, and that's really what got me into this whole area of sports science and sports performance. I wanted to better understand myself and what was happening with my injuries. And you know, this was 20 years ago now, so the the field has completely changed. And you know, it, we we know a lot more. We can prevent a lot more. We can train a lot smarter. And it really got me into that whole field of why do things happen the way they do, and what can we do to make sure that the athletes get the attention they need, train the right way. And you know, it really comes down to improving your performance, reducing your likelihood of injury all under a, a framework of train hard and recover hard. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, I, you know, I, what I really appreciate and what I've noticed in your book, uh, that's a big emphasis, uh, is, is the, uh, you know, the not, not the cookie cutter approach, you know, every single athlete has different uh, weaknesses and strengths. And it, it's really important, as you mentioned, to, uh, you know, really analyze the, the athlete and figure out what they need to improve upon. And, um, you know, in looking at your just, you know, amazing record and, and, uh, you know, you have a lot of degrees and certifications. There's so many letters uh, on here next to your name. And I actually wanted to ask you, uh, you know, what, uh, degrees and certifications do you have? Sure. So, you know, I, I started in the field as a strength and conditioning uh, professional working. That's a certified strength and conditioning specialist through the National Strength and Conditioning Association. Uh, and that's really to work with uh, competitive athletes, not a tennis related uh, program at all. I actually w started working with NFL athletes in pre-draft combine mm -hmm. and uh, baseball athletes were the two major ones. 
Uh, and so that's an area that, you know, I still spend a lot of time working with individual athletes, you know, on the field, on the court, in the weight room, things like that. Uh, and then also went and did my academic training. So I have a master's degree in exercise science, which is a combination of biomechanics and physiology. And then I uh, did my PhD in physiology. So, you know, that's from an academic perspective. Uh, and then we started a, a association about four years ago called the International Tennis Performance Association. Uh, and that educates and certifies individuals that work with tennis athletes uh, from tennis coaches all the way to physical therapists, medical doctors, chiropractors, strength and conditioning professionals. Uh, and, you know, so I'm, I'm certified through the, the International Tennis Performance Association as well. Uh, so that's sort of my background from uh, certifications and an education background. But, you know, a, a big part of it is really combining that information and that knowledge uh, with the practical application of working under some great coaches, some great scientists over the last couple decades and really applying it the best I can with the athletes that we work with, the coaches we work with um, and the different associations and high performing teams. Wow, Mark. Well, I mean, the breadth of knowledge that you have over uh, you know, the very complex, uh, you know, facets of sports science is, uh, is truly staggering. And, and we all are, are aware of um, all your accomplishments. But I actually want to do want to ask you, uh, what's one thing about you that most of the world doesn't know? It's a really good question. There's probably a lot of things people don't know, know about me. Uh, you know, I, I definitely can't sing. Uh, <laughs> I don't dance very well. Uh, so th those okay. two things for sure. Uh, yeah, I'm learning to play golf. I'm trying to get a little better at that. So those are three things there that most people don't know uh, about me. So that, that's one of those questions where I could probably name off 10 or 20, but that's three to get you started. Well, that's pretty good, Mark. I'm sure if you practice hard at those, you'd be a pretty elite uh, singer and such. Uh, but Mark, so now uh, just uh, to get into, you know, the the content that everybody is just really excited to hear. You know, we, we've seen a, a lot of uh, questions posted when I announced that I was going to interview you, and uh, I'm so excited as well. But um, so in your book, uh, The Complete Conditioning, uh, sorry, Complete Conditioning for Tennis, Second Edition, um, you know, in the first chapter, you talk about uh, several elements of tennis fitness. And obviously, tennis is really, uh, in some uh, respects, like underappreciated for all the different skills that people uh, that's required of the players. So can you talk about the different elements of tennis fitness that's required? Sure. I mean, I think it's like most sports that uh, require a, a multitude of physical capabilities. You know, we need the flexibility, you need the strength and power, you need the agility and movement, you need the endurance to last the long matches, you need dynamic balance. So these are all factors that really come into being a proficient athlete first and foremost, uh, and then a tennis player second. And unfortunately, many people are so focused on the tennis side of it, hitting tennis balls, that sometimes they don't develop their physical capabilities well enough. And we see that at every level of the game, that if your physical capabilities aren't optimized, you may have great strokes, but if you can't get to the ball, if you can't recover from wide balls, and if you don't have that fitness for the long term, you know, you can't compete at your highest level for three or four hours that you may have to in some matches. So it's really, really important to look at yourself as a tennis athlete and make sure that you don't have major limitations in your uh, physical capabilities. And that's an area that definitely can be worked on. You can really do a good analysis to understand where you're at today and then what areas you need to work on. Well, Mark, I really appreciate you highlighting uh, just how critical tennis fitness is for um, the success of tennis players. I know myself, um, whenever I'm at my uh, peak physical condition, that's when I'm playing the best. And obviously, I mean, well, it helps every player, but especially those who are, for example, baseliners who grind at points. I mean, fitness is just paramount. And, um, you know, there's a lot of different elements uh, that you mentioned. And sometimes I feel that players get overwhelmed as far as what they should be addressing. So how would you prioritize and address uh, the different elements of tennis fitness when we're trying to plan out our training? 
Sure. So it's a really, really good question. And everyone's at a different stage of their tennis development. At younger ages, there's certain things you want to focus on more. At older ages, there's things you really need to prioritize. Uh, you know, the, the thing with most tennis players are from a speed, power, uh, strength perspective, a lot of that is based at the foundation on your strength level. So you need to make sure that you are doing some form of strength training. That's really the foundation for a lot of other physical capabilities. So strength is one component that needs to be a priority. The other is your endurance. You've got to make sure that you can last a match because we know plenty of players that are great in the first set, but by the third set, they've got nothing left in the tank. So strength on one end of the spectrum, endurance on the other. And then the third big piece is this flexibility slash mobility area, which you've got to have the right range of motion. You've got to be able to get into the right positions correctly so that you can really utilize the energy appropriately, meaning that the energy from the ground up through your entire kinetic chain out into the ball. And that's where the great players, the efficient athletes do a great job and they get injured less typically. Uh, and they're individuals that are less efficient. They're always using the wrong body parts to create their power. They're adjusting at the last minute to make contact with the ball. Those are the play players that typically have more issues in the long run. Right. Uh, that's fantastic. I mean, I remember seeing a picture of uh, Tommy Paul in, in the uh, book uh, that we're talking about, Complete Conditioning for Tennis, and uh, just a beautiful balance that he has at the end of the stroke, and that's uh, that attributes to his physical fitness and balance and flexibility and everything, uh, you know, rolled into one. Uh, in your view, Mark, and in, in your experience, which one of the fitness elements that you've uh, explained to us is most lacking in the majority of amateur tennis players? So when we're talking amateur tennis players and more so adult amateur tennis players, mm -hmm. a lot of what you see as a limitation is general um, body strength, not necessarily absolute strength not how much can you lift one time, but the ability to sort of repeat that movement. So muscular endurance strength is really one of the areas where we see a lot of people are lacking, meaning that when I ask someone to do a single leg squat, for example, many of them really struggle to be able to you know, put weight through their hip and through their lower limbs without collapsing or falling one way or the other. And that's a really, really important factor because a lot of what happens on a ground-based sport like tennis is, is all the energy comes through the lower body, through the hips. And if the hips and the core region is not strong and stable, doesn't have that stability, we lose energy. But then we also have to recruit other muscles to allow us to make contact with the ball. And that's where we see a lot of the problems stem from. So if you had to name one area... It would be, you know, really developing good muscular endurance. Sometimes people will call this uh, stability, uh, the ability to stabilize in these positions effectively. So we want to make sure we've got stability with muscular endurance. That's fantastic. And so, you know, regarding tennis musculature, um, you know, you discuss in depth uh, the physical demands of the game and the muscles used in tennis. And I'm curious also, uh, what is one critical muscle group that tennis players tend to ignore and undertrain? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I mean, we used to say it was the core, the core region. I think a lot of people now understand that, that that's really, really important. So a lot more people are now training the entire core region. Uh, still, sometimes they're doing it with the wrong exercises or doing it the wrong way and recruiting the wrong groups of muscles. But that area at least is more of a focus. Uh, one area that doesn't get enough attention is the lower limb, so the calf all the way down to the ankle, because that's really your last major muscle groups and then the last major joint before ground contact. And we know that everything that we can get energy-wise into the ball comes from the ground. So if we have a weak link at the ankle and through the calf, then everything further up the chain is limited. So really emphasize that ability to have good range of motion throughout the calf muscles, uh, have good stability through the ankles, uh, and then really be able to generate enough force through that that we can transfer up through the body and out into the ball. So you know one of the areas that we see is quite limited in most 
tennis players and it's not a major focus is that calf through the ankle area, especially in the amateur adult players. And so with that, what is perhaps one exercise that we can implement right now um, to strengthen that area? So there's really a couple good ones for the calf. I mean, one, you want to make sure you stretch it out daily. Uh, calves mm-hmm. tighten up. Most players' calf muscles are rather tight. So we want to be doing calf stretching. Most people are familiar with the, the most common ones. You know, you can push against a wall and lean forward, and that'll stretch your calf. You can put your foot up against a wall uh, and then lean your body forward, stretching out your calf muscles. So that's two stretches that are really, really beneficial. Uh, and then the other area is really doing, you know, body weight squats is really good. That does more than just the calves. But if you do body weight squats on a regular basis and try to get lower each day, it's going to help give you some strength down in the lower limbs, not only the calves, but also the hips as well. And that can really be advantageous to individuals that are using their legs a lot when they play tennis. They're on, on court for multiple hours and you've got to have your engine, which is your legs, working you know, at, at a good clip on a regular basis. And you need to train that effectively. Fantastic. And I know that you, uh, amazingly, this, this uh, book that you co-authored has you know, about 56 videos in it explaining uh, you know, most of the critical exercises uh, that you mentioned. But you, meant, you also uh, said that we should try to be going uh, lower each time we squat. And I was curious, you know, there's different, um, I guess, philosophies on how low we should go. But are we talking parallel or maybe lower than that? Yeah, great, really good question. Because most individuals struggle to get very low, especially the older you get, the stiffer you become in general, unless you're doing structured flexibility and mobility training. Uh, you know, a while back there was a big, um, you know, advice to for most people to not go below parallel. It would put more pressure on your knees, or, uh, and that's what a lot of people thought. And if it's done correctly, that's not necessarily true, but Unfortunately, a lot of people are very stiff and very tight. So in general, you want to make sure that you get to parallel. That's goal number one. And then if you're planning on trying to get below parallel, it's not necessarily a negative. I do that with a lot of the nearly all the athletes I work with. I get below parallel, but it's under control and it's with correct technique. The challenge is the moment you get below parallel, things start to change in your posture, especially at the lower lumbar spine area. And if you don't know what you're doing in that position, you will sort of cheat to get that extra range. And that's not what we want. So that's why in general, if you're working out by yourself, if you don't have a trained person who's working with you, helping you on technique, you want to be, play it safe on that. And you know, just go to parallel but if you are working with a trained person who knows what they're doing, going below parallel is actually really beneficial because when we're on a tennis court, we have to get ourselves in all sorts of positions. We're lunging, we're sliding, we're getting below the height of the ball. You know, So we need to be trained in all those type of movements that we may experience on a tennis court. Right, uh, I appreciate that information. I, I just love uh, squats are one of my favorite exercises. So I can't help but ask you these two quick follow up questions. Uh, one is, you know, there's the high bar squat and the low bar squat, I guess, primarily. And there, there's also overhead squat as well. I mean, is there, you know, one in particular that you would favor over all the others? Or is it, you know, we just use all of them uh, at different points in our training? Yeah, so there's a lot of squat variations. You know, where you position the bar is one aspect. Where you position your arms, whether you, you know, whether you go a wide grip, a narrow grip on the squat, uh, the, the, whether you do a front squat or a back squat, uh, whether you go an overhead squat, whether you then change it up with dumbbells or with um, kettlebells or goblets. There's all sorts of variations to perform a squat movement. The the, the question that you have to ask yourself is. What's the safest version for me based on my body shape, based on any limitations I, I may have? So, you know, barbell squatting is great if the athlete has stability, has good technique, has the ability to get in the right positions. However, many tennis players, especially adult tennis players, 
barbell squatting may not be the preferred model. It may be a form of dumbbell squatting, band squatting, you know, kettlebell type squats. There's a lot of variations there. The big question you have to ask yourself is, am I targeting the front of my legs? Am I targeting my glutes, uh, my butt muscles? Am I targeting my hamstrings? Depending on how you squat, you can change which muscles get recruited to a higher percentage. So there's a lot to it. Um, in general, most people don't think like that. They're like, hey, I just want to work my legs out. I'm going to do a squat and I'm going to get everything all at once, which is true. You are going to recruit your quads, your hamstrings, your glutes, your back muscles, your core muscles, your calves are involved. So that's why squatting is a great exercise because it's a total body movement. Uh, but it's important to understand that you know certain positions in a squat can cause potential issues if they're not done correctly, just like playing tennis. If you hit a tennis stroke with the wrong technique, you're going to get yourself in trouble over time. It may not happen on the first rep, but if you continually hit the ball with the wrong technique, you are likely to hurt yourself. And it's the same thing in the weight room. So you've got to be smart about how you structure your your routines uh, and progress appropriately. The biggest thing is gradual progression and we see that with too many people when they haven't worked out for a while they get back in the gym and then they start on a routine and the first couple of days they feel great because they're not sore they haven't done much uh but the problem is they do too much the first few days and that's where we see and i i see because a lot of people come to me p- potentially with issues they you know they they've got an injury or they've got a soreness that doesn't go away and that's really important for that amateur tennis player, especially. For sure. It's definitely uh, important to realize, uh, you know, you, that you have to be biomechanically efficient and also realize your limitations and, and take it slow, uh, you know. And um, one last question on the squat is, you know, with the myth about going past parallel, uh, the absolute thought that it's it's dangerous. You know, I've also heard that partial squats could have you know put pressure on the knees. But is that also something where if you do it uh, technically correctly, it's it's fine? Yeah, I mean, depending on what you mean by partial squats, there's a lot of variations on partial squats. If you're doing quarter squats, uh, for example, which I you, you work with a lot of track athletes, and we'll do quarter squats sometimes for starts and acceleration training. That's not putting a lot of pressure on the knees as long as they're sitting back in their glutes. If you do those partial squats or quarter squats where your knees really come forward, then that potentially can put a little extra strain on the knees and it's not something that's recommended. But again, it comes down to the technical proficiency and making sure we're recruiting the big muscles. Our biggest thing with all movements is we really don't want the joint to be stressed significantly. We want the muscles to be loaded. Uh, but we want to limit the stress on the joints in all movements. That's our objective. Um, so if we structure the exercises to focus on the muscles rather than putting the pressure points on the joints, we're going to have more success in muscle fiber recruitment, which is our goal typically in strength training. We want to get protein synthesis. We want to get adaptation to occur. Um, typically, we want muscle to grow. Uh, not necessarily get you know big and bulky, but we want positive adaptation to occur. So that's why you see a lot of players that work out a lot. They don't necessarily get a lot bigger because they've structured their training to not necessarily increase their size of muscle, their hypertrophy. But what they are doing is they're developing muscular endurance and they're developing power uh, and they're developing general strength as well but they're just not trying to increase size of muscle as an objective. And then other athletes do want to do that. You know, there's a lot of people, especially as you age, you want to increase muscle mass because there's a natural aging effect that actually decreases muscle mass over time. Uh, many of the listeners have heard of sarcopenia. Uh, sarcopenia depends where you're from. Um, and that's basically muscle loss over time. And that can be reversed if you do structured strength training. So really, really important concept. Perfect, Mark. And so, um, you know, you go into detail about the different uh, effects of different rep ranges and number of sets uh, that you choose to incorporate in your routine. But can you give us just, a, you know, an overview of in general what rep range or number of sets people should be using and, and the impact of that on, on the their results? 
Great, great question because sets and reps uh, and total load are three things you really need to understand because you'll hear a lot of the time a starter, beginner program, many times people will be given three sets of 10 of an exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, And that's arbitrary to a certain extent because the 10, the 10 reps are only relevant if we know what the load is. So let's say you're lifting a dumbbell. And, you know, three sets of 10 with 20 pounds is one thing. Three sets of 10 with 50 pounds is something completely different. Uh, but it all needs to be related to what your sort of maximum capabilities are. Because if you do three sets of 10 with 20 pounds, but you could actually do three sets of 15 before you failed uh, on that movement, that's not really going all the way to your 10 repetition maximum. Whereas, you know, you may be able to do 30 pounds with 10 reps as well, but that would be the max you could do. You couldn't do any more because, you you know, you would fatigue out. So you have to be really smart when you're talking rep ranges because that's the same rep range. Three times 10 with 20 pounds is one thing. Three times 10 with 30 pounds uh, to failure, so to speak, 10 rep failure um, is something very different. So you really need to make sure that when you're analyzing your sets and reps that we're talking about going very close to failure. It doesn't have to be exactly failure, meaning that you couldn't do one more rep, but it's going to be pretty close. So that's really important because that's what most of the literature is based on when we're talking about rep ranges. So to just review for the folks, when we're talking about developing sort of absolute strength, meaning how strong can we be, you want to do less total reps um, and heavier weight. Mm-hmm. So usually that's less than six repetitions um, with a, as heavier weight as you can lift safely. Then we get into this sort of hybrid range of things that occur between about six and 12 or so. Uh, and that's where hypertrophy can occur. Uh, and, and that's also where s- some good strength occurs. And that's why you see a lot of the programs have rep ranges between eight and 12. Uh, so that's where we see a lot of people start with. Uh, And then when we get higher than that, say 12 and over, sometimes 15 and over, that's where we get a lot of this muscular endurance work that we are focused on. So those are the three broad areas. Then we have another area called power, which is really what the optimization for a tennis athlete is the goal of a lot of strength training. We want to turn or utilize our strength for power production. Power transfers our strength and our speed together. So we can actually utilize whatever strength we have as fast as possible, which helps us generate more pace on our forehand and backhand, help us hit our serves harder, all those factors that I think are pretty important for most people. So power requires us to work at a less total percentage of our maximum load, somewhere between 30 and 60% generally for most people. Uh, And that's in a lower rep range. So that's usually less than five repetitions. Uh, but it's not as heavy a weight. So that's where a lot of people misunderstand sometimes. When we're trying to get strength, we want to be heavy and low reps. When we're looking for power, we want to be lighter, move it faster with low reps. That's fantastic, Mark. And, uh, you know, what what you're talking about with the different rep ranges, sets, load, and, you know, even even speed with the power workouts um, directly feeds into something that I l- first learned in uh, college in my tennis program at UMBC with their strength trainer, which is periodization, uh, which you devote uh, a whole chapter to as well in the book, uh, which I really appreciate. And, uh, you know, can you talk about you know, first, what periodization is and how we can use it to maximize our training and performance for uh, for tennis? Sure. Yeah, no, no, great point. And periodization is simply a form of planning. It's planning objectively to try to increase and also decrease loads appropriately throughout a period of time um, to optimize your training and then be prepared for your appropriate competitions. So you want to play, most tennis players, the reason a lot of the time they train is so they can compete at a higher level. So you need to structure your training with heavier weeks, lighter weeks, higher volume weeks, lower volume weeks, and doing that in a scientifically based way that you can optimize your training, not get injured either, which is a big benefit of periodized training. Because we can't week after week do more and more and more. At some point, you break down. 
for some players that may be week two or three of a program other players that may be week six or eight of a program but at some point if you keep increasing the workload uh, and increasing the intensity you are going to break down and a structured periodized program is designed to avoid that you monitor the workloads you monitor the rest and you then pull back on the training based on what the numbers are telling you objectively. So it's very objective if it's done correctly. You see where the players are at, you progress them based on a plan, but then you monitor and track them on a daily basis. So when you get a number or two that show you that, hey, they're starting to fatigue at this point, we're starting to see signs of fatigue, and there's a lot of different ways to monitor that, um, then you want to start backing off and you want to reduce volume, reduce intensity, let them recover a little bit for two, three, four days, maybe even an entire week, depending on how bad it is, uh, and then you start ramping up the training again. The other option, if you don't do that, is the body naturally will shut itself down. It'll get injured, it'll get burnt out, it'll get sick, and that's the worst way to, to really structure your training. Train, 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 get sick or injured, stop, and then do it again. And that's what most people do. They train, 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 get sick or injured, then they take time off, and then they start it all up again. Periodized training is really designed to appropriately ramp up our training with structured download or unload weeks throughout the year so that that doesn't happen and that we can continually progress better and better training, more volume if needed, uh, and appropriate progressions with recovery. Fantastic stuff, Mark. And so, you know, in general, um, you know, when we consider the different uh, phases and uh, I suppose uh, types of training, um, I mean, I would surmise that we would, in the order we would we would approach this, is we would first do strength and then we would do power. And I'm wondering where you know aerobic and anaerobic training fits in. So could you give us maybe a, a general progression, let's say if I was, or our audience was preparing for a big tournament in, in four months, uh, you know, what we would train first and so in terms of strength and power and such? Yeah, no, great, great question. And there's really two avenues you can approach the progressive training like that for if you've got a few months out. One is called a traditional or block periodized model which is uh, you do training blocks on a specific focus. You may spend two or three weeks on strength, two or three weeks on hypertrophy, two or three weeks on muscular endurance, two or three weeks on power leading into an event. So you really emphasize one specific component for an extended period of time. This is a great way to train and develop those areas, no doubt about it. Uh, And with a lot of athletes that have a traditional season, where they have a full tr- uh, off-season, a full preseason, That's how I train them, you know, football players, basketball players, different sports like that that have six months, some of them, to really train physically without competition. Uh, and that allows you to do that. In many tennis players, they don't have that luxury necessarily because they're playing once a month, they're playing every two weeks. A pro tennis player uh, may play three weeks on, they may take two weeks off, three weeks on, and that's their entire year. So for those individuals that are a year-round sport that are competing year-round, we use a tennis-specific periodized model that I I personally use. It's a development over the last sort of decade and a half, and it's a form of non-traditional periodization, meaning that we do everything every week. We have a strength day, we have a hypertrophy-focused day, we have a muscular endurance day, we have a power day, uh, and what we're doing there is we're working everything each week, and the way we periodize it is we increase or decrease the volume and intensity uh, in a structured way leading into our major tournaments. So certain events where we know aren't as important as others. If someone's playing for a national championship, for example, that's a priority. So those weeks we want to peak for, whereas if they're playing a local event in their hometown just for match practice, they're going to train through that tournament somewhat. They're going to maintain their physical training regimen. They're going to work through their periodized plan uh, so that they can really peak for some of the more important events. So those are the sort of two broad models that you can utilize uh, and both have their benefits. 
both also have some limitations just based on how you structure them and what your scheduling limitations are. But again, the objective is to build the foundation. So making sure you have good stability, good flexibility, and good general strength as your base. And then you put things on top of that. You put your hypertrophy on top of that. You put your power on top of that. You put your your speed movements on top of that. If you do speed and power first without having a strength base, you're going to really limit your development and you could potentially injure yourself as well because power movements are very high velocity. And if your body's not adapted to the right type of training, we don't want to go straight into power movements on day one without a good base of support there. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Thanks so much for that, Mark. That's uh, just super helpful and is going to help a lot of people in our audience uh, train effectively uh, with periodization. Um, so one question that I have from Grace, who plays ITFs, uh, is what are the best strengthening exercises for the serve? Yeah, really, really important question. And you know, I do a lot of work on the serve. Um, we do a serve-specific screening tool uh, that we utilize with our, our athletes to figure out where their weak points are, specifically related to the serve, uh, and then put them on uh, structured training programs to improve that. And you know, in general, the big areas that athletes need to focus on are you know the hip range of motion. Most people don't think of the serve as a hip range of motion exercise, but that's really where a lot of the power source is. So they have to have good hip stability and hip range of motion. And then the second big area is their back leg strength. So most people don't have great strength or power off their back leg. If you're a right-handed tennis player, that would be your right leg. Uh, And that's an area of focus. Uh, so we still want to focus on the upper body. We know how important the shoulder is, and we do a lot of work in the shoulder as well. But step one is we need to make sure that our lower limb uh, and our hip uh, is really doing its job because if it's not doing its job, then the arm and the upper body has to take over and do more work than it's really designed to do. And that's where we see a lot of the upper arm issues, a lot of the upper arm issues, whether it's shoulder, elbow, even wrist Uh, A lot of the time is a result of poor hip stability, poor core strength, and and poor lower leg strength. So we really try to make sure that we focus on the lower body first uh, before we overemphasize the work we do on the upper body. We still do work on the upper body because it is very, very important, but usually that's not the cause of the problem. The cause of the problem in nearly all cases stems from the lower body. I really appreciate you, uh, you know, emphasizing, uh, you know, the lower body because a lot of people, when they uh, set out to train for, uh, to make themselves uh, better servers, they concentrate on tricep exercises and such where they're not really even thinking how much the hip and lower body contribute to the kinetic chain and ultimately the, uh, a better serve. You had a, uh, or you authored a, a fantastic article uh, that I saw on PubMed called uh, An Eight-Stage Model for Evaluating the Tennis Serve. And I was wondering if you could just kind of, you know, just talk about uh, that article briefly and then in general, uh, just the importance of the kinetic chain. Yeah, no, most definitely. I mean, this all came about been studying the serve in pretty uh, extensive detail for nearly two decades. Uh, and a lot of the work that was done in baseball hadn't been done in tennis. So we kind of wanted to analyze the serve in a biomechanically correct way using the uh, evidence-based literature that's out, that's been done in biomechanics labs all over the world, summarize that, and then put it into a model that coaches can use, players can understand. Uh, and really, there's eight areas of the serve that have to be hit in the right way to have the most efficient serve possible. Uh, And all the players get into those eight positions, but the good servers getting into them correctly, the poor servers find a way to get into them, but they're not in them correctly. 
So it's really, really important to make sure that we get an appropriate loading transfer of energy from the ground up through the lower body, through the core, and then out through the arm into the racket, into the ball. And, you know, simply put, we've got to load in the opposite direction to where we want our energy to go. You know, if we think back to Newton's laws, we, we think about for every action, we have an equal and opposite reaction. And if you think like that, it makes the whole serving concept a lot simpler to understand. We need to store our energy in the opposite direction to where we want to release it. And we need to sink or summate our forces from the ground up through the body and out into the ball. And there's really one correct way to do that. There's a lot of ways to hit a tennis ball. There's a lot of ways to make contact. But usually if you don't sink all these areas correctly, certain parts are going to do more work than they should. And usually they're smaller groups. The joints get stressed more in the upper body. Uh, We start getting core and lower back strains because our core and lower back are trying to do more than they should because the lower body hasn't done its job. And that's really what we are trying to avoid. So what we do is we screen the athlete specifically from a serving standpoint. We understand their mechanics, uh, analyzing their serve. And then we do a full physical screen specifically designed for the serve to make sure that we know where their body's weak and where they're strong, where they're flexible, where they're not specifically for the serve. And then based on that, they put on a training program, both a technical training program on court for serving and then also a physical training program to make sure that we correct the limitations that are causing them not to be able to get in the right positions. And again, it's a process that takes weeks, sometimes months to correct. But just like everything else, if you understand the cause of the problem, you can fix it. A lot of the time, people try to fix their technique without understanding the cause of the problem. Sometimes it's purely a technical issue that can be changed just by a cue and some practice. Most of the time, there's a physical limitation that is the reason why you can't do certain things on the tennis court. We do the same thing for movement as well. I love that, Mark. I mean, again, it's really important to know yourself and what's going on and, and your limitations. And that's another reason why I really love uh, complete, complete Conditioning for Tennis, uh, second edition, because you devote a chapter that shows players how to actually uh, perform fitness tests and such uh, to figure out what areas they're deficient in, whether it's uh, power, balance, and such. And uh, I mean, I think that's that's really cool that you have that in the book. Um, but you, you also just mentioned um, uh, footwork, a speed and agility. And, you know, there's a lot of players who have inefficient biomechanics, especially with their footwork. And as you mentioned, inefficient, uh, you know, just they don't get to the ball in the uh, least amount of steps. So what advice would you give a player who knows that they have uh, inefficient footwork uh, on, on how they should approach correcting these deficiencies? Yeah, very, very important area because the footwork piece is quite misunderstood sometimes. Uh, A lot of people think that taking a lot of little steps on a tennis court is the best way to move, and it's it's definitely not. Uh, It's actually one of the – it's a slower way to move on a court. We want to be in the air more than than we're on the ground. So what that means is we want to take less total steps to go from A to B. The problem is – We want to do that as quickly as possible, so we have to have the right amount of power to generate into the ground and out. So if you think about uh, Usain Bolt, for example, at the Olympics, the reason he wins pretty much everything is he takes less total steps than all his competition in the 100-meter dash. Mm. If the fastest way to move was to um, take a lot of little steps, we'd see everyone shuffling down the track, and we don't see that for a reason because the fastest way to move is to take big steps. What happens, though, is if we take big steps, sometimes we do need to take those small adjusting steps. But that only occurs if something's gone wrong in your movement, meaning though you haven't timed it right, you've overran the ball, you've misread the ball that's coming to you. So great movers always look like they're in the right position. And it's not because they're taking a lot of little steps. It's because they're timing their steps to get to the ball at the right time. So for individuals that really struggle with movement, You've got to ask yourself, am I using the most efficient footwork patterns possible from a technical standpoint? That's question number one. 
Then question number two is you've got to analyze your strength and power to make sure that you actually have the leg strength and the ability to produce the power to move quicker. So that's step number two. And then the third piece is do you have the flexibility and balance? And they go together in this standpoint. So this is uh, this concept of stability. Do you have the stability to be able to take these larger steps, land, absorb what you need to absorb, and then take another step without losing your balance or without taking too much extra time to regain your balance? So there's really three broad areas there that we need to focus on to make sure that you can correct some of those movement inefficiencies that you may have. But again, you got to understand the cause because everyone has slightly different causes or limitations in movement. It's not always the same reason for you. Your, your doubles partner may have a completely different issue as why they're limited. So that's why really understanding yourself and you know, really having a good picture on what the causes and limitations are of your movement can really make a big difference in how you train. That's fantastic advice, Mark. And so assuming, I had to adjust this question a bit, but assuming that uh, you know the athlete has a, a good, solid foundation for their footwork technique, what is one footwork drill that uh, you like to incorporate into your athlete's training that will help their speed and agility on the court? Yeah, so from an on-court training standpoint, there's a lot of different drills that work really well. Uh, we do the T-line to S-line drill, which is basically, um, you know, the server. You know, we have the the S-line, which is the uh, line in the in the single sideline, and then it goes to the T. So it's just about a, a 13 and a half foot distance. Uh, so it's the service box width, uh, and then all you do is you run, fa- you know, facing the net. And you cross over, touch the lines, and you do that for 30 seconds. That's a great exercise, not only for your footwork, because you have to work on your change of direction. You have to work on accelerating and then decelerating quickly and then reaccelerating. And if you do that for 30 seconds, that's about as long a point as most people will play is 30 seconds. So you get a little, a, a little good speed endurance is what it's called. So you're still running at a fast speed. But you're starting to get a little tired those last 10 seconds. So you've got to maintain your speed. So that's one great exercise that we do. Uh, another one is the spider drill or a five ball pickup. This drill's been around. This has actually been a test for over 30 years. So this is a test that is utilized a lot and it's in our, it's in our testing chapter. Um, and it's really five balls positioned on the corners. So on the singles line and the baseline, on the singles line and the service line. Uh, on this on the service line and the T line uh, then we and then you do the same on the other side and you have five balls you have to pick those up and put them back on the T uh, on the baseline T and you do that as fast as you can so that really incorporates a lot of different movements uh, in the distances that we see on a tennis court so those are two great exercises that can be incorporated there are dozens actually hundreds of others that I utilize with players. Uh, some add resistance, some require shorter distances, some require longer distances. But it's really, really important to focus on your technique. Understand your angles going in and out of corners because that's really, really important. That's where you make up your time is when you go into a shot and you decelerate and then you have to immediately reaccelerate. Uh, and that's where the great movers do so well. It's not how fast you start. It's how well you stop and how well you restart. It's really the art of good movement. Fantastic. Thank you for that, Mark. And, um, you know, there's a ton of footwork drills, among other exercises, that are all in Mark's book, which I will uh, certainly link to in the show notes at tennisfiles.com slash 33. Um, so we had Alistair McCall on the show, another, uh, you know, well-respected um trainer and fitness expert uh, who just has fantastic knowledge of the game. And he mentioned that, um, you know, how how important flexibility is in general, especially uh, I think he attributed Novak's rise uh, specifically to flexibility, uh, at least a substantial part of it. And so what are three stretches that every tennis player should be incorporating into their stretch routine? Yeah, no, stretching's very, very important. You have to understand that stretching by itself is is vital, but we have to get functional range of motion, meaning that we can utilize the new range of motion that we get 
if you just continually stretch without strengthening that new range of motion, that can potentially lead, lead to issues. So, you know, there are people that stretch a lot but don't strengthen in those new ranges of motion. So you have to be a little careful there. Uh, but in general, most tennis players are very stiff. Uh, stretching is really, really important. Uh, a couple areas. First off is calves. Got to get those calves loosened up. That's, again, we talked about that earlier. Really, really important to do your calf stretches to loosen up that area. Um, the next is you know, our, our hips. Our hips are typically very tight for tennis athletes. So we want to make sure that we loosen up our hips uh, and specifically you know, our internal hip rotation. Internal hip rotation in tennis players is very poor. So we want to make sure that we stretch our internal hip rotators. And there's some great stretches in the book for that. Uh, and then the third area that you really want to you know, f- focus on is the shoulder because that's where we see a lot of the challenges. And the biggest challenge in the shoulder is our internal range of motion in our shoulder. So, you know, the sleeper stretch is one stretch that is commonly recommended. There's a lot of others. Um, but if you take a look at the book, they'll really go into detail as to which stretches and how to uh, perform them because it's really, really important to make sure that the flexibility and the stability is developed so the athletes really uh, can do what we want them to do on court because having the strength is great, but if the flexibility is not there with it, you're limited in, in how much range you can use that strength in. So it all goes together. Being strong is great, but you have to have the flexibility. If you only have flexibility without strength, we have a problem as well. So you need to make sure you're training all these components appropriately. Oh, that's fantastic. That reminds me of, I believe, your quote in, uh, I forget which magazine, it might have been ESPN, where you mentioned how Federer, you know, he didn't have, you know, the top, top, um, you know, strength in the world or the, the, he wasn't the most, for example, flexible or powerful. But if you uh, take the average, uh, you know, he basically was off the charts of these attributes. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the, all the top tennis players, you know, I really, they're never going to be have the best vertical jump. I've worked with football players and basketball players with 42-inch verticals. No tennis player has a 42-inch vertical. You know, they're, they're in the mid-20s, low 30s at best. But their, their, you know, 40-yard dash times aren't going to be four threes or four fours, which a lot of athletes I've worked with can run. They're going to be in the four sixes to four eight range probably. You know, they're not going to put up 225 on the bench press 25 times or 30 times. So they're not going to win any of those traditional competitions. They're not going to win a marathon against one of the top marathon runners. However, they're going to do pretty well in all those competitions. And when you combine all those scores together, their average is going to be higher than a football player because they're not going to have the endurance. They're not going to have uh, some of the other attributes that tennis players have. The marathon runner is not going to have the strength or the power or the speed that a tennis player has. Uh, so, you know, tennis is one of the toughest sports in the world to play at a high level because of you need to be really good at all those physical variables let alone the one-on-one mental competition and the stress and anxiety and pressure that one-on-one competition um, forces you to do. So you have to perform at a really high level under physical stress, but also significant mental and emotional stress in every match. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, so true. And I just uh, really appreciate you mentioning how important uh, it is to just focus on several uh, aspects instead of, you know, some people just go and work out and focus on strength only, and you've got to put it all together. Mark, I mean, obviously your your book, Complete Conditioning for Tennis, a second edition, uh, which you co-authored with Todd Ellenbecker, who I've actually been uh, in communication with, and I really hope he comes on the show, and Paul uh, Rochard, who are two just uh, amazing fitness experts. Um, I just want to ask you, you know, there's a ton of information in the book, and how do you recommend we we digest it all and, and put what we read into action? Yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned, um, you know, doctors wrote it and, and Alan Becker, both Paul and Todd have been longtime mentors of mine. They actually wrote the first edition of this um, together. And uh, I was honored and humbled when they asked me to sort of, you know, take the lead on this uh, next edition. Um, and they're phenom- phenomenal individuals in the tennis space. Both of them have really 
you know, changed the field over the last two decades in the conditioning space and the strength and conditioning space for, for tennis. Um, but from a standpoint of how you should sort of analyze the book, the way I would suggest it would be to read through the whole book once, um, like you would any, any normal sort of um, fiction book. Um, and then really then highlight chapters that you feel like you need to optimize. So, you know, we have chapters on movement, on strength training, on nutrition, on recovery, on injury prevention, on testing. And although all, all the entire book's good for everyone, we all understand we don't have unlimited time to go through everything and do every exercise. So we've given some sample examples. We've given a lot of videos that a lot of people like. So that's definitely, you know, one of the best ways to utilize the resource. I want to also thank the United States Tennis Association because we worked very closely with them and they're a co-author of the book as well. And, you know, the folks at uh, USTA Player Development, you've got Dr. Paul Lubbers, uh, Dave Ramos, uh, Satoshi Ochi, uh, all contributed and really helped to, you know, get this over the finish line to be a really good resource for the industry and for, you know, tennis players at all levels. Yeah, I mean, I, Again, I echo your sentiments uh, to, about uh, thanking the USCA. Uh, they've they've done a lot for um, you know for tennis and for this book and and in furthering a lot of people's enjoyment of the game, USCA leagues and such. Uh, just amazing job from them. Um, so this is the second edition of the book. Obviously, the first edition uh, James Blake on it. This one has Isner. But what else has been changed or updated from the first edition? Yeah, great question. I mean, we've, we've completely redone this book. So there's some similar chapter names as the uh, previous edition, but every chapter has been completely re redone with the latest information. The previous book was more than 10 years old. So there's been a lot of differences um, in the research, uh, in the best ways to train. So that has been redone in the chapters that have similar names to the previous edition. But we've also added a, seri a series number of chapters as well. We've added a nutrition and hydration area, which is an area I spend a lot of time in, uh, a whole chapter on recovery, which we know how important that is. Um, our injury prevention and rehab chapter was really increased significantly, our testing chapter. Um, so we've really added a lot more detail uh, all the photos, all the videos are brand new. So it's a completely different book um, just because it's got the same title. Uh, more than 70% of the information has been updated. I appreciate that, Mark. And, uh, you know, just incredible job to, to all of you on this book. If you had to pick one chapter that you were the most proud of, uh, that you think has the most value, I mean, this whole book has uh, incredible value, but what, which chapter would you pick? I mean, that's a tough question. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it comes down to the individual. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, every individual has a different area of need. You know, I think the testing chapter is phenomenal because mm -hmm. there are so many different types of tests and that allows you to assess yourself. All easy to do, all can be done on a tennis court. And again, the one thing about this book is we didn't, you don't have to go into a weight room to actually, you know, utilize this book. It allows you to do everything with bands pretty much, um, and, and or dumbbells. So you can do all the workouts without a lot of equipment, which for a lot of people is really beneficial. You can also go in and do a lot of um, the work in a weight room, but it was designed in a way that allows you to take this to the court, you know, really utilize, you know, limited resources to perform a lot of these exercises. Fantastic, Mark. Uh, well, obviously, a very important question is where can we get complete conditioning for tennis? Sure. So it's available um, everywhere online, Amazon, bookstores, etc. Um, you can you know check it out also and and contact me through my website, uh, mark dash kovacs com, mark kovacs com, uh, or you can also find it uh, on the International Tennis Performance Association website, which is itpa dash tennis dot org. Uh, also, you know, if you're interested, follow on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me at mkovacsphd, uh, and I can give you – I do a lot of updates on there if you're interested in, you know, daily information, a lot of research studies I put up out there. It's a good, easy way to communicate the latest research, uh, upcoming events, things that are going on. 
So, you know, if you're on um, Twitter or Facebook, you know, feel free to follow and, and communicate through those mediums. Fantastic, Mark. Um, just want to ask you a question, uh, one fan question. We got a ton. One from J.R. Stryker. Uh, what is one misconception or myth that is common among players uh, looking to increase their fitness uh, to improve? Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of misconceptions. One for, I think, a lot of people is um, the strength training aspect. A lot of players still haven't completely bought in um, to the benefits of strength training and pretty heavy strength training as well. Uh, a lot of the top pros have because, you know, they're competing against the best in the world. And although a lot of players may not look, you know, super imposing, some do, some don't, but they're all lifting pretty heavy weight compared to their body weight. So that's an area that really, you know, to get faster, um, to get more powerful, you need a strength base. Uh, and there's no way around that. There's no way that, you know, athletes that want to get faster, they have to get stronger. There's a reason that the fastest athletes in the world, wide receivers, running backs, you know, 100-meter sprinters, you know, most of their life is spent in a weight room lifting heavy weight. It, you know, it's really, really important to understand that. And that's one of those things where it's it's a pretty important area. If you want to develop your speed, your movement, your power, you know, strength training and relatively heavy strength training needs to be incorporated. Remember, you need to have good technique. You have to know how to do it correctly. That's why you want to work with a trained professional. Um, but it is an important area of the development for your tennis fitness. Fantastic, Marius. It's all about uh, you know, making the body adapt. Uh, and you can only do that through uh, pushing your body uh, gradually within reason and, and tweaking uh, one of the many variables when you train. Mark, what are some other books, because you've written a ton, uh, and or articles uh, that you think we should check out um, that you've uh, authored? Yeah, no, I mean, there's there's a lot of information I've done another book with Paul Rodup, which is called Tennis Anatomy, and uh, that's uh, another strength and conditioning type book for tennis. The beauty about that book is it's got a number of phenomenal um, drawings, actually, with all the muscles um, imposed on it. So you actually see the muscles that are working during strokes, but also during strength and conditioning exercises. So that's a great resource. Um, we've got a few other books, uh, Dynamic Stretching Book, which is uh, for multiple sports. We've also got a Stretching Strap Flexibility Book, so I've done a lot in the flexibility space. Uh, we've got this Tennis Recovery Book as well. Uh, so there's a lot of areas that are relevant to the tennis athlete uh, in those resources. But if you're looking for more information, uh, I'd recommend you go, go to my website and can, there's a lot of information there and can direct you to other resources that are available for you as well. Uh, fantastic. Yeah, I really recommend that uh, for our audience to just immerse themselves in uh, you know, just all the wonderful uh, resources and materials that uh, Mark and um, other respected fitness experts have created for you. Uh, much of what you know is free online as well uh, as the book, which you can purchase. Um, just amazing stuff that will really help you uh, take your game to the next level. And Mark, where can we find you um, either online, in person, and on social media? Yeah, no, no, definitely. So, you know, easiest way uh, to contact me, um, you know, you, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, it's mkovacsphd, uh, or on Instagram, all three are the same, mkovacsphd, so m-k-o-v-a-c-s-p-h-d, uh, or you can uh, check out the website, uh, mark-kovacs, m-a-r-k hyphen kovacs.com. Uh, those are the two easiest ways to reach me. Uh, you know, if you've got questions, feel free to reach out through that website uh, or on Twitter or Facebook. So uh, look forward to, you know, hearing from folks and, you know, catching up with uh, other tennis players around the country and around the world. Fantastic. Yes, everyone, please comment, uh, you know, on the uh, tennisfiles.com slash 33 uh, you know, just on any thoughts you have about uh, Mark's uh, advice and you know, what's what works for you and what doesn't and such. I'm sure it'll pretty much all work. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, Mark, we love to end the show by asking uh, our esteemed guests uh, this question, which is what is one tip that you can give our audience uh, uh, that is the key in your mind to help improving uh, that will help improve their tennis game? 
Yeah, the biggest is focus on the details, meaning focus on your technique, focus on doing the little things correctly. And that's the biggest thing that will make the, the biggest amount of impact. The drills, the exercises, you got to pick the right ones. But especially even more important is focusing on the technique and doing it the right way. Way too often people are doing the right exercises. It's not about the wrong exercise. It's about doing the right exercise the wrong way. So make sure you emphasize, overemphasize, learn from the right people who can teach you the right ways to do what you're supposed to do. As we know, there's a lot of information out there. Much of it is incorrect. Much of it is, isn't evidence-based. You know, make sure you're doing things the correct way. Find out the, find the best resources, utilize the experts, and make sure you're really getting your information from quality sources. Mark, uh, I can't thank you enough. It was uh, just amazing to speak to you and to hear all the knowledge that you've accumulated and uh, over the years. And, uh, you know, thanks for uh, positively affecting the uh, performance and lives of so many athletes uh, from all all sports. And I really cannot um, endorse Complete Conditioning for Tennis, uh, the second edition, enough. Uh, I've been reading this book and I'm really amazed by uh, just the amount of depth and uh, the personalization that uh, is afforded uh, everybody who reads this book in terms of finding out what they need to do through reading uh, this book to, uh, you know, take their fitness and their game to the next level. Uh, there's so many videos in here and um, explanations, and uh, it's just incredible. Uh, I think, you you know, you'd be making a mistake, to be honest, if you didn't pick up this book. Uh, just fantastic. And uh, Mark, thanks for being uh, just a wonderful guest and for being so responsive, uh, you know, on Twitter, messaging me back uh, when I, I asked, uh, I was praying that you'd come on the show and you did. And I uh, just want to thank you for everything. Yeah, no problem at all. Keep up the great work and, you know, keep spreading, you know, good information, which you, you do. And, you know, look forward to following the podcast in the future as well. So, you know, yeah, appreciate all the opportunities to, you know, share good quality information. Thank you so much, Mark. You take care. All the best to you. No problem. Thank you so much. All right. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Mark Kovacs from the 2016 Archive. And if you did, then I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review for the podcast. And you can do that at tennisfiles.com slash Apple Podcasts or in your podcast app of choice that you use to listen to the show. I also want to leave you with a quote as I do at the end of every show, and this one is by Vernon Sanders Law, and the quote is, experience is a hard teacher because she gives the test first, the lesson afterwards. Really love that one. And yeah, I just uh, wish you all the best and really look forward to bringing out more content for you to help you improve your tennis game. Uh, already been preparing for the Tennis Summit 2023. And yeah, just uh, a lot coming down the pike. So with that, have a great one. And I'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is your host, Mirvana Ranshad, signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.